I was thinking about various things that I might call this talk, and uh, I had some fancy ideas, but actually what it's about is about the joy of mindfulness. And I was particularly having some pleasure these last few minutes, so I look around, and uh, anybody looking in on us, uh, everybody's walking around quietly, and might have a view that this is a kind of a somber practice, and we talk a great deal about suffering, after all. But really, I want to talk about the fact that this is happiness practice. And uh, every aspect of it, I think, is a facet of joy. And talk about the joy of collected attention, which is what, what, uh, one way of thinking about mindfulness, really bringing our power of attention into this moment. and really hoping to see clearly. So I thought as I was putting this together about the fact that when I first began to practice, uh, I uh, thought of this as insight practice, actually. It's been translated mindfulness, uh, which is the name that comes from the Pali word sati, which really means paying attention. We really ought to be calling this paying attention practice. And which would be more to the point than mindful. But actually, mindful in, in British English really means paying attention, being alert. Uh, it's also called insight meditation. Uh, we don't do that so much anymore. But when my teachers first explained it to me, they talked about having insight in three particular realms. And they'd say, you get insight in the realm of... Uh, the physical and the body, and you get to see and understand new things about yourself. Those insights are new understandings about this physical body, and uh, that are, uh, are are pertinent to you. That are part of your body understandings about it, and that the second level of insight would be insight into uh, the psychological dimension of our being. Also idiosyncratic, everybody has a slightly different psyche. We all want the same kinds of things, but everybody has a different story and now a different personality and a different history. And so when you think about insight in the psychological sense of the word, when we're in therapy, we hope to have insights into the genesis of our behavior patterns, hopeful that insight will set us free from those patterns. And then the third level, my teachers promised, and I'm telling you that this in that way because you can see it sounds a little hierarchical, like this will be the, the beginning stuff, the little stuff not so important about the physical body, more important about the psyche, you see a little bit more, but the really liberating insights, I thought they were saying, are the insights that are universal insights, how life is how experience is, what's the truth of things, what's the truth of suffering, what's the truth about becoming, what are the universal truths that are not different from me or you or anybody else. And first of all, I, I soon began to think that any insight was important. And any area of my experience that had been previously not so clear to me that now has light shed on it and I see more clearly is a valuable insight and in that it's not doesn't make any sense to say this is a good insight, but it's of a lesser variety than those 
universal insights. An insight is an insight, and light leading to freedom from habits is wonderful in any dimension. And as I thought about it today, I thought really all of those dimensions are probably present in every moment of insight. I thought, for instance, about uh, the fact that we used to, in the beginning of retreats, have an exercise of eating raisins. We would introduce eating meditation by passing around a bowl of raisins with instructions. How many people here can see how long you've been practicing? How many people did the raisins meditation? Oh, a lot of people. How many people didn't do the raisins meditation? Okay, so I'll tell you about the raisins meditation. The raisins were sometime before the second or the third meal that we took together. Somebody would say, uh, we're going to have an experiment now that's a preparation for eating meditation because, in fact, the Buddha said in all activities, sitting, walking, standing, lying down, going about the business of life and all its variations, you should be paying attention, so clearly including eating. And we'd pass around these raisins, and uh, by this time people had been sitting for a day or two, so it passed slowly, and people would take some raisins out of this bowl that was passing around, and we'd say, don't eat the raisins, just put them on your hand and look at them. So people are looking at them like they never saw a raisin before, because actually we don't normally look at a raisin that carefully. You look at a raisin, you know, sometimes you think, yeah, that should be a grape, that's amazing, you know, look at it, it's so little now. And anyway, you look at the raisins for a while, and then you hold it in your hand, and the smell from the raisins, especially if you're really paying attention, if you hold it up, people used to say smell, then people could smell the raisins. Notice that you started to salivate by smelling the raisin. Because now, you probably are salivating now thinking of the smell of raisins. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? You don't, suppose you had raisins in your hand. And I, said, I am even salivating. And so raisins in the hand, you're just thinking about there's no raisins within 100 yards of here. But anyway, but you can taste the raisin. Then we would say, now, with your hands and your fingers, take a raisin and put it on your tongue, but don't chew it. Wait. Put it in the middle of your tongue, and everybody, but now you're really salivating. And then you say, okay, take a bite of the raisin and chew it. And everybody, mmm, and they chew the raisin. And people uniformly said, this is the most amazing raisin I ever ate in my whole life. And of course, the raisin is the same as any other raisin that they ate in their whole life. And what's different is their attention that's present at that moment. And it, uh, it used to be a prelude to the eating meditation. And then we'd go on to say, when you eat, try to eat in the same way and really appreciate the food. And we don't uh, do the raisin meditation anymore. I think what's happened in the 20 years since we did it is there are more health department rules if you can't pass around a big bowl with a hundred people putting their fingers into it. I really think that's what happened. Uh, we have to have now individual raisins. I even <laughs> thought about this afternoon while I was thinking about it, maybe we should get those tiny mini boxes of raisins and pass it around and we could you know, get around the health requirement. 
But, uh, but we tell people still, uh, and I did the first day, when you go in to get your food in the dining room and you collect it and you sit down, look at it a little bit. I hope you're doing that. Look at it and smell it and uh, see how it visually stimulates and how the smell of it stimulates and how the how thoughts come up, uh, especially if you like what's there. Even if you're not fond of what's there, once again, celery, it's interesting to see that the, what the mind does. It n notices, first of all, the celery that it doesn't like and doesn't notice the eight other things that it does like because there's it, just a lot of things to learn about the mind just from looking at a dish of food. And when people report after a little while that they've been here, that their minds and their bodies have settled down a little bit. It's not unusual for somebody to say, you know, I looked at that food and I was overwhelmed with how many places it had come from in the world. And every bit of it came from another place. And it went through so many stages. Somebody planted it, somebody harvested it, somebody brought it, somebody cleaned it, somebody chopped it, somebody made it. Um, and here it is. Often people say, I feel myself so lucky that I'm here and eating this. I feel myself lucky. People sometimes very touchingly who have been sick with some terrible illness. People with chemotherapy don't have an appetite. But then afterwards, when they're well again, they have an appetite. And they say, you know, I didn't appreciate enough before how marvelous it is to have an appetite because you can have the most beautiful food in the world in front of you and without the appetite it doesn't look good, it's not enticing. But to have that, that, that meeting of an alert mind and appetite and appetizing food is exciting as anything. It's not unusual that people uh, either continue a practice of blessing that they've had before eating, but they say, you know, I've been bowing to my food and the cooks for years. I've been saying, for what I'm about to receive, I am truly grateful. But I never actually thought about what that meant. And I never felt what it meant. And all of a sudden, yesterday, I was saying, for what I'm about to receive, I am truly grateful. And I realized, I truly am. And that was a different story. And not unusually, People go on to say, I then found a little while later that I was thinking about both gratitude for the people who cooked it, and it occurred to me about the numbers of people in the world who don't get to sit down in front of a plate of food like this and don't have it and haven't got clean water and aren't sure if they have food today, if they'll have food tomorrow. And they say, you know, I thought about it and I am determined to do whatever I can to make a difference in the world. We have enough wherewithal. I know I can't personally altogether myself change it, but I can do things with people. I can join organizations. I can talk to my friends. We could make a different world. I think what people often realize is that it's going to take everybody to make a difference, but each of us are part of everybody. And somehow we're connected to the web of people in this whole world eating. 
We're connected to the whole web of people that are making it possible for other people to eat. <coughs> that from the exercise of look at the food comes both thanksgiving and rededication to serving in the world. And I think the thought, I'll make a difference in the world, is a thought that brings joy to the mind. I am convinced that our largest sense of joy is in the feeling of liveliness, the feeling of aliveness that, from, that comes from heartfelt connection, sometimes with ourselves, sometimes with our kin, sometimes with really all beings, because we're all doing this trip together. In these weeks together, we've practiced some loving-kindness meditation, and I think that people have discovered that when you think about somebody who isn't your close kin, just you wish them well, because they're the familiar strangers in your life, that you feel good because suddenly you're in warm connection with them. I think that's one of the major extraordinary talents that come with this human incarnation, that we are warmed by each other's presence and by our connection, even in person and in thought. So I wanted, so I, I wanted to tell you that little beginning because I wanted to talk about the joy of uh, uh, realization of a sharpened physical uh, awareness. When we eat something, we're paying attention to it. It tastes amazingly better. But more than just the pleasure of the amazingly enhanced physical experience is the pleasure of blessing, the pleasure of connection, the pleasure of knowing oneself to be rededic rededicated to serving. It's the joy that comes from just the moment of connecting with how it is to be alive through taking a bite and appreciating it. I think that's the insight into the physical self that seems to me so important. You talk about mindfulness as the moment-to-moment -moment experience, not only of what's happening outside and inside in this body and mind, but what the feelings that are that come up about it. And also, what clear comprehension of what purpose comes along with it. Because I think that the full mindfulness is not only what's happening, but what I learn, what I know from what's happening, and what I will do from what I learn. And knowing that it connects me is a, an enormous joy. So then I tried to think, well, okay, I started that one with a connection to an enhanced awareness of uh, physical pleasure, say, in eating. I was thinking of the joy of uh, seeing one's personal story. And so we're going to go to the level of psyche to enter this one. The joy of seeing through one's personal story and realizing that it's only a story. It's come up in the questions and answers about views and fixed views. And uh, I was uh, uh, listening uh, this morning when Anushka was talking about we have a certain view. And you could see visually when she had her hands up that if you see that this view, it blocks what's out there. Uh, there was a cover on the New Yorker magazine recently of um, a real estate agent 
showing a couple, uh, uh, an apartment apparently, uh, in Manhattan. And they're standing on the little balcony of this apartment and ringed by huge skyscrapers, big apartment buildings. But in between some of these buildings, and clearly the real estate agent is pointing it out, you can see a sliver of what, what's either the Hudson River or the East River. It's not clear when you're seeing, but uh, you're imagining that the ad for this apartment said River View. <laughs> and that's its River View, this little piece of it. And, uh, and, and it's funny because you don't even know if it's the Hudson or the East River, and it's not a river view, it's a sliver of river view, <laughs> which is different from having a whole view. And the whole view is really what allows the mind to see things in a new configuration. So when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about um, a story of a, of, of a friend, a friend of mine told me this story. She was on a a mini-retreat from her organization went off and had a mini-retreat for a weekend. So I wasn't there, but she told me the story of all these 20 or so uh, women or people, I can't remember, all were practicing together for some period of time and in silence. And then at the last uh, supper that they were having together, um, the person telling me the story, we'll call her Louise, it's not her name, but we'll call her Louise. Uh, Louise told me that um, the, uh, the, the teacher teaching that weekend said to her, uh, I've noticed, by the way, over the, all these meals that uh, you don't eat any cooked vegetables. Why is that? She said, well, it's true, I don't eat any cooked vegetables. That's because when I was a child, my mother forced me to eat cooked vegetables. So she said, the teacher thought for a little bit, and then she said to her, that was a long time ago. <laughs> and so first of all, it's a little funny because it's poignant, you know, that when you think about, we all know that there are insults to our psyche that happened a long time ago that didn't go away just because they were a long time ago. There are insults to the psyche that last a long time. But she said it so surprised her that it was a long time ago, that she said, I thought about it afterwards. And she said, I suddenly realized that my not liking cooked vegetables must have preceded my mother forcing me to eat the cooked vegetables, because if I would have liked them and eaten them, she wouldn't have been in the position of forcing me. <laughs> so it must have been an antecedent to my mother pushing the vegetables. She said, you know what? She said, I have had a story my whole life about my mother pushed and intervened and particularly you know, was a di difficult and domineering mother. She said, I think it over my mother was a nervous person. I was a very skinny kid and often sickly. My mother was probably worried about me. She said, when I moved out to the West Coast, I told myself I was getting away from my mother because she was so pushy. I really needed that. Right after college, I moved out to the West Coast. It was hard for my mother because she was recently widowed. She's alone. But I, you know, I said, I can't live there. We have two-tenths of a relationship. She said, you know, my mother was a little bit overbearing. But I think I used the my mother was too pushy for me to live near story 
to get me out to the West Coast. The real reason I moved to San Francisco was I wanted to live in San Francisco. That's why. And I told myself that story, and it covered up probably some of the guilt I had about leaving. So she said, so she was telling me this a little bit after the fact. So she said, since then, I've been calling my mother quite regularly. We have a much more cordial relationship. I think it sometimes happens that we see through a story that we've told ourselves for a particular reason that's serving a particular purpose, or we think it's serving a particular purpose, and then that story becomes the truth. But who knows what the story is of why we like cooked vegetables or why we don't, or why we're like this or like that. You know, I, it seems to me for, uh, we, we mostly, uh, I think myself and probably all of us, grew up in a very um, psychodynamic climate. We all have psychodynamic explanations for why we're the way we are. So that when we meet people, if we're getting to know them a little bit, and we want to say something really intimate about ourselves to build a relationship. We say, well, I'm this way because my mother this and my father this and this happened and then my father's in the Air Force, we had to move 10 times, or whatever it is. But we make up a story that seems to suit, to, to give a reason for why I am the way I am now. And they might be the right reasons, you know? Other people might have said, you know, the reason I went into international relations is that my father was in the service. We've moved eight, ten times to so all these different countries. I really got interested in how it is to live all over the globe. I wanted to study it. I think we build our case for to justify how we are, sometimes ex post facto. I'm not sure the stories that I tell about why I am the way I am are any more correct than I was born in Leo with a moon in Libra. And uh, I'm either a six or a nine on the Enneagram, depending <laughs> on my friends who keep telling me and I keep forgetting. And I'm something else on the Myers-Briggs, but I also keep forgetting what else it is on the Myers-Briggs that I am, which probably means something. And, <laughs> and my colleagues tell me I'm a delusive type, which you can probably figure that out now from that I didn't know all those other things. But maybe not my mother, my father, or all that. There's a, um, do you remember there's a song in uh, West Side Story uh, where a gang of what we then called delinquent, you know. Anyway, it's 1950s and a delinquent gang of uh, people in, in uh, New York City are singing a song uh, called Dear Officer Krupke. You remember that song? Dear Officer Krupke, I'm very upset. I never got the love that every child ought to get. And then it goes on and on and on and on. And then it ends, and that's why I'm so bad. <laughs> so it's very much the thinking of the 1950s. It's, it's my mother did this, and my father did this, and that's why I'm so bad. But it might be I was born in Leo with a moon in Libra. Who knows, you know? But, but, and the other thing is, it doesn't matter whether it's X or Y. It's matter, it ma what it matters is that for me to see, you know, I have this mind habit that doesn't serve me very well and does not tend in the direction of happiness and actually creates suffering for me. So from whatever I got it, maybe I inherited it in a genetic code, but whatever I got it from, there must be a way to change the habits of the mind. 
I think that's the great insight of um, the Buddha, that in fact, by seeing, we could um, change the habits of the mind. In fact, actually, the uh, unsung hero of the Eightfold Path, of all those eight uh, different ways to think about devoting oneself to personal transformation, I think the unsung hero of the path is right effort. We talk a lot more about mindfulness, concentration, understanding, but effort, because the, the Buddha was quite clear about what wise effort was. And he said it was the effort specifically to see those habits and states in the mind that were wholesome and to cultivate them, and the ones that were unwholesome and to remove them from the mind, and the ones that are not yet arisen wholesome states to cultivate them, and the ones that are not yet arisen uncultivated states to keep them out of the mind. So it's really just four things to do. The good things that are there, keep them there. The good things that are not there, let's put them in. The difficult habits that are there, let's put them out. The difficult habits that might be there, don't let them get a foothold. Pretty clear. Just Actually, I, I love to read that because it sounds so much like the Nike ad. Just do it. And <laughs> we mostly find that it's hard to change. But, you know, we've built a whole story of our life around this. Sometimes, I, I, I don't think in this retreat, no, I think it was in one of the retreats earlier this year, I, uh, I uh, proposed um, the same proposition I often, I often uh, put out when I'm teaching a metta retreat, and uh, we're talking about um, the fact that the, the, the mind has a hard time letting go of grievances those stories of who did me wrong that bring up feelings of antipathy and how uncomfortable those feelings of enmity really are. And I say, see this glass of water? This is actually magic water. It's water to which an uh, invisible herb has been added. And you can't see it because it looks just like plain water. But if you take a sip of this water, every story that you have that about that's keeping going some enmity, will be, every grudge is going to be erased from your mind. It's grudge eraser, water. And I say, who will take a sip of this water? Who here will take a sip of that water? <laughs> a lot of people do not put their hand up. One person didn't put their hand up last time, and he said, I wouldn't do it. I said, OK, why would you not do it? He said, if I did that, I wouldn't be me. And in a certain very profound way, he wouldn't be me anymore. He'd be a different me. I wouldn't be me if I could forget every story of who insulted me and who did me wrong. I'd be a happier me, actually, if I could forget all those stories. I'm not sure that we forget the stories. I think what I, what, what's happening more and more to me, some stories I forget, but others, I remember the story, but they're of no import after a while. Because at, at a certain point, I think what the mind discovers is if it doesn't give them airtime, they lose their potency. Remember, oh, that was so-and-so who I used to not like. But now it doesn't do anything. And it's really insight both into the story, but also more profoundly 
into the pain of maintaining that story and keeping it going. So the part of it that's personal and idiosyncratic to me is who said what to whom and what story and what mind habit. And the part of it that's universal is that for all of us, if we have somebody in the mind that we have not been able to reconcile our, our feelings of aversion towards, not been able to say, I don't really care for this person, I don't like them actually, but I don't wish them any ill. May they be free of danger, may they be safe, may they be content, may they be strong, may they live with ease, which is not for the other person's benefit, by the way, it's for my own benefit when I can do that. So part of the insights that start out to be the insights of my psyche, because it was this person who insulted me in that way, and this one that over time kept criticizing, or this one who did this that made that habit, those are idiosyncratic to me. The fact that the mind is in pain and suffers with the tension of enmity and antipathy until it's ready to let it be, that's a universal insight. I might also add, if we're going to talk about the awareness of physical joy as well, the physical part of that, is when the mind doesn't have to keep those stories going. It's such a relief. Remember the poem, uh, The Ancient Mariner? Remember? It's Tennyson. I think it's Tennyson. Coleridge, Coleridge. Coleridge. That selfsame moment he could pray from round his neck so free, the albatross fell off and sank like lead into the sea. I think we go around with albatrosses of grudges that all of a sudden when we see them clearly and stop hanging on to them, because really they are not hanging on to us, we are hanging on to them, they fall away. We have the great pleasure of not being embittered anymore. I think there's a great joy of liberation that comes through seeing clearly. I think the equation is mindfulness leads to insight, leads to wisdom, leads to compassion for all beings, and leads fundamentally and essentially to joy. So we'll talk about uh, if we enter in through... Um, universal insights. How does it happen that we suddenly realize something that we might all realize? Maybe when we go out and uh, we're walking outside and see suddenly that uh, the moon has come back after it's been gone and it's a three-day-old moon. It's just beautiful. And you look up and, you, and there's a moment of, if, if it happens to me, my mind can be in any kind of a turmoil. And I go out and I look at that, and it's somehow magic to me that on the third day of each lunar month, that same moon in that same place comes up, and I find it so attractive, it's idiosyncratic to me that I like that better than a four-day or a two-day moon, but nevertheless, I think it's so beautiful. And it lifts up my heart, and in that moment, 
I have the direct awareness that I can have my problems and my turmoil and whatever it is that's holding my mind in discomfort, and around it I can have a moment of great appreciation for how it is to live a life. There was a moment a couple of years ago, uh, I was walking down to the meditation hall after sitting here uh, with a whole group of people meditating as we're doing now, and as we approached getting down towards the dining room, suddenly there was a flock of quail that went across the, the pathway. I haven't seen the quail this year, but there were a number of people walking down. It was lunchtime, and so all the people stopped because the quail were walking across the road, and there were 12 quail, baby quail, and there was a, 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 a mother quail and a father quail. You can tell by the plumage who is who, and they were running back and forth, sort of escorting this 12, uh, of a file of 12 baby quail across the road, and they kept running back and forth, these two parents, and all these, and all these retreatants standing and looking at them, and all of us chuckling and smiling. There's something quite entrancing about uh, this little beautiful sight of, I guess it was in the spring, so newborn quail. And I, I don't know what other people were thinking, but I was thinking to myself as these two parents ran back and forth, that's amazing, quail can count. I figured that they were counting to make sure that they were all there. I'm sure that there's another way. I'm sure they weren't counting exactly in that way. But it looked like they did. They ran back and forth. And everybody was chuckling and you know, making appreciative mmm sounds. You know, we don't talk to each other, but appreciative sounds. And the insight that I had in that moment was not about the quail so much, but about all of us. Because I had been walking down. And whatever I had in my mind, I had my story. We are each of us walking around. If we could see what's in everybody's mind, if we had a big balloon over everybody's mind, and the fortunate we don't, but if we did, <laughs> we had a big balloon, and you'd see what's going on in everybody's mind, everybody's got their entire universe, certainly, certainly joys and wonderful things, but all of their worries going with them. What if this doesn't work? What if that doesn't happen? What if I don't feel better? What if I don't get better? What if this one doesn't get better? What if this? What if this? What if I don't pass the test? Everybody's got their big balloon of stuff that they carry with them from one place to another. We can't put it down. You know, We take it with us. That's, um, that great title of John Kabat-Zinn's book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. But we take that big balloon with us all over the place. But in that moment of the counting the quail, I thought to myself, that's the amazing thing. Each of us has an entire universe of 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes. And they're probably all percolating away like mine are. But in that moment, we can all stop and appreciate quail. That the human mind can do that. We can lift itself up enough to say, hmm and chuckle, 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 or whatever we did about it. And, and actually behave in a respectful way so the quail could round up all their family and take it away, and then we went on to lunch. And I thought to myself, people are amazing. People are amazing. People are amazing that they carry around all this stuff, and they appreciate it, and they take care of each other, and the quail in this case as well. We keep on going.
I wanted to add one fourth area of joy. I, I had decided I was going to talk about the joy of physical insights and the joy of psychological insights, personal insights, and the joy of universal insights. I wanted to talk in, and it's about what sounds at first blush paradoxical. I wanted to talk about the joy of compassion. That I think actually that the, the end point of insight is wisdom and the manifestation of wisdom is really compassion in its largest sense. We've parsed out compassion as being separate from metta and separate from empathic joy, but I actually think they're all forms of compassion. And I, you know, I, it's not my place to contradict the years of teaching that I have decided to call the Brahma Viharas differently, but I would call them all compassion practices, that out of wisdom, that the general goodwill that we think of as metta is a form of joyous compassion for everybody who's keeping on going. I, 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 uh, perhaps I said earlier on in this retreat that my favorite place to think about that is uh, in long airplane rides across the ocean if I'm going to Europe and uh, walking up and down you get up to go to the toilet or just to stretch your legs and walk around a little bit and uh, on an overnight flight and everybody is so packed in and they look so uncomfortable sort of strewn around and uh, and uh, people people with children sleeping on them and people leaning on the people next to them if they're traveling with them and trying not to lean on them if they're not traveling with them uh, old people and young people and people with babies that are crying that they're kind of trying to keep quiet everybody is trying so hard to keep themselves comfortable and to make everybody else comfortable to not intrude the person with the babies up and down the aisle all night long patting the baby so that it doesn't disturb anyone and I look around and I think we're all so heroic. It always seems to me to, me to me to be a metaphor for life, that kind of a flight. We're all packed in, we're all under a certain amount of strain, and we're all trying so hard to behave ourselves and keep it together and really be cognizant of the people around us. I feel so good about people at that point. I think people are so heroic so that I think that my method practice seems to me a mixture of compassion for the fact that we were all trying so hard to do this and joy that we can. It's an amazing thing. We're heroic. Everybody in this room has some amount of troubles going on in the world, in their, in their life. Something that worries you. Some physical or emotional or work-related something. But everybody came here to work on themselves. That's heroic. When we, I even I think that uh, uh, mudita, empathic joy, even when, when, especially in moments of something is wonderful, I often think I, it's part, partly because I, I, I tend to the melancholic, but I think it's actually partly a, 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 an aspect of wisdom that it, I look at a situation of joy, 
Um, I've been going to a lot of graduations in the last several years from middle school and uh, high school graduations as my grandchildren are moving on up. And you look at, uh, I, I sit there in an in a amphitheater and hundreds of young people are filing in and I watch all the families looking and they're looking for their person, you know, and you can pick it. Everybody looks the same in a cap and gown, so you really have to look, but you can see people pointing, there's our person, there's our person. And uh, I, I, I often start to cry at those kinds of experiences because I think to myself, given the numbers of parents and the number of people and uh, multiplied by the numbers of trips to the emergency room at 2 o'clock in the morning for appendicitis or broken legs or car accidents or uh, and every other thing that could have happened up to now. So a lot of effort went into this moment and you look at these beautiful young faces and you think, I wonder what's going to happen to them. And some of them are going to thrive and some of them won't because it's a difficult I mean, it's a, it's, it's a fragile thing, this life, and you don't know what's going to happen to who. And so even in the middle of feeling excited for people and happy for them, I think to myself, this is such a bittersweet moment. If everyone knew how fragile this whole enterprise is, when our person came back, our particular graduate to us, we would hug them and kiss them and love them and celebrate the fact that we made it till then in the full awareness that it's a miracle. It's always a miracle when we come back together with our lives and our people intact and res relatively well. It's a miracle. I think if we remembered it, when I remember it, I think of my mind, metaphorically speaking, lowering its voice, getting a little bit less strident, more kind, in the same sort of way that you lower your voice when you walk through an intensive care ward in a, in a hospital. Everybody's trying very hard. Everybody's jeopardized. You don't want to make it harder for anybody. And you want to celebrate everything that's wonderful. I think about, you know, the, 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 the uh, uh, well, maybe the graduation is a good uh, example of it. You celebrate a celebration knowing it could have been other. There's a special kind of uh, joy in that. Really an appreciative joy. It's really, for me, has compassion in it. It could be otherwise, and it is for some people. And I, I also thought that I had one, a fifth kind of thing that, that uh, I could put in a list of the joy of mindfulness. And it's actually the joy of um, goodness, of knowing that human beings are essentially good that when we don't do something right, it weigh, for most of us, maybe not everybody, but for most of us, it weighs on the mind. 
People notice, I notice, maybe you notice, I always notice that when I sit, there's a kind of a spontaneous moral inventory machine that operates in my mind. You notice that? You know, sometimes in, 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 in religious services, they'll say, now we'll take a moment for um, personal moral inventory. I don't actually have to say to my mind, we'll take a moment for personal moral inventory. <laughs> but to sit down quietly, and my mind says, all right, here you go. Yesterday, when you were talking to so-and-so on the phone, she really wanted to talk a little bit more, and you were in a hurry to do your thing, and you hung up a little abruptly. And the day before, when you spoke to so-and-so, it was a little too abrupt and a little too harsh. And maybe you want to call up and apologize for it. If I sit enough, I can keep up with my list enough. Sometimes it, sometimes it figures out, it remembers stuff from 50 years ago, which is really astounding. I, uh, out of nowhere, a couple of years ago, because someone was driving me from a retreat center to, the, uh, to uh, an, uh, an airplane, and we crossed the, Russia, the Hudson River. I remembered a, um, an unkindness I had done to uh, a young man that I'd been out on a date with on a boat ride up the Hudson River 60 years ago. <laughs> and I haven't thought about it. But my mind was pretty relaxed, and I felt bad. The whole story is too ridiculous, but... Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I didn't pay enough attention to him, in essence. Like none. So <laughs> <laughs> I got interested in a troop of Boy Scouts uh, from uh, Des Moines, Iowa, who were flirting with me, and I flirted back. And it was, you know, I, I look back; it actually makes me a little sad. But you know, I'm not that person, but uh, <laughs> anymore. But it was, you know, it wasn't my finest hour, and I remembered it 60 years later. And I told the person that was driving me, I said, you know, I just had this memory, and I told her the whole story of it. And she said, you could, you know, maybe call the person and apologize. <laughs> I, yeah, I said, I can't call a person 60 years later. First of all, how do I know where they are? I, she said, you don't remember his name? I said, I do remember his name. But given his name, I would guess that there are uh, at least... Uh, 50 men in every major metropolis on the East Coast, 50 65-year-old men on every, in every metropolis on the East Coast with that same name. What am I going to say? Right? Put it, she said, you could go on the Internet. I said, well, what would I do? I'd put it up and say, uh, if you are the Marvin Goldstein that I insulted 60 years ago, I apologize. I said, first of all, suppose the real Marvin Goldstein reads that, and it reminds him of that, and it re-embarrasses him. <laughs> Suppose there's another Marvin Goldstein that, that also got him, you know, you never know. And the, Suppose the Marvin Goldstein that I was with wasn't actually humiliated, and now I'll put it out in public and it'll become humiliated. <laughs> So, but the, 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 I, I tell it to you, you know, I wanted this to be a serious talk, and it's a funny story, but actually I ended up by saying I will think of him with very good wishes, wherever he is, if Marvin Goldstein is still in this world. I really honestly do wish him well, and I hope I didn't hurt his feelings so much that it demoralized him, if not 
not maybe forever, but for the near future after that. <laughs> he was anyway, he was, as I was, a shy and awkward adolescent, and I hope I didn't make it worse for him. But it, I actually felt better I, thinking about, I wonder where that's been all those 60 years, and it's somewhere in my moral inventory machine. And sometimes I think to myself, it's a great thing about human beings that we have a moral inventory machine. I don't know that other animals have that. And it makes me feel that essentially we're good. We're good. And we are meant to be companionable and cooperative. And that's what our DNA is. And that gives me a tremendous amount of joy. I think to myself, if we are cooperative, companionable animals capable of remorse, and regret about making mistakes, we could actually change the world. We could all stop and say, look, we're doing it wrong. We're wasting the planet. We're wasting resources. We're not obligating people to stop fighting with each other. We're waiting for it to end, but maybe we could do something different, all of us. Because none of us can do it alone, but we all could do it communally. And I, and I truly believe that our essence is really joy and goodness and delight in each other. So I think that's what happens from paying attention. We feel our bodies, we understand our psyches, we understand what's true, we understand the great rules that about the beginning and end of suffering. We discover that we're basically good. We experience the joy of compassion. So now we can just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.